0: Love, talk, radio.
1: You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at HelpForHD.org. To watch us in person, find Help For HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help For HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
0: Hello everyone and thanks so much for tuning in to help for HD live this show is made possible because of the grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation I'm your host Lauren Holder and today we have Dr. Francis Walker on with us Dr. Walker has been a longtime HD expert um, over 30 years in um, clinical care and research for Huntington's um, at Wake Forest Baptist Health and Wake Forest University and um, he was my personal doctor before he retired, uh, my father's doctor, um, which we're very sad that he that he is retired, but glad that he's finally getting a very much needed break. Dr. Walker, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you, Lauren.
0: So we're going to be talking about dystonia today in Huntington, and um, let's start off, though, with what dystonia is.
2: Well, um, I usually think of dystonia as just a sustained involuntary muscle contraction. And it's not all muscles. It's usually a set of muscles that leads to a specific movement. Um, And so often it's twisting or repetitive, um, but it it is a, a localized phenomenon. So your arm twists or your jaws clench or your eyes close or... Uh, some other movement takes place. It can be uncomfortable, and sometimes it can even be frankly painful if the contraction is strong enough. And sometimes we see it associated with tremor as well.
0: Okay, so so when you say that you see it associated with tremor, you know, how so? How like I guess I don't under understand.
2: No, no, that's uh, it's a good question. It's like. How does dystonia cause tremor? But if you tighten your fist hard enough, you'll notice that you tend to quiver. And so sometimes the dystonia is a little unbalanced, or there's actually a fight against it. So if you if you if your hand starts to twist in one direction, you'll tend to try and overcome it in the opposite direction, or if, if your arm turns. And so we we sometimes refer to this as a dystonic tremor, but it can occur in several different ways. But tremor is not usually the typical manifestation of dystonia. It's just something that sometimes can occur with it. Most commonly, we just see sort of a sustained pulling in one direction. And then if a person becomes aware of the dystonia, they they sometimes will kick in the opposite direction to try to correct for
0: it. Okay. And a lot of times with HD, we tend to think about dystonia in the juvenile onset and um, we you know we talked about it in that sense but it is a very um, real thing in adult onset too right
2: that's correct and you've been doing your reading very good and uh, absolutely so what happens as Huntington's disease progresses we see uh, over time in adults we tend to see more dystonia and and it's associated with overall worsening of the condition. So it's uh, more trouble walking, more trouble functioning, and it seems to go along with even changes in thinking and concentration a little bit. So as the concentration gets off a little bit, we tend to see a little more dystonia. But even patients that don't have Huntington's disease can get dystonia, and it's a very distracting phenomenon. I mean, the most common dystonia that we see in Non-Huntington's patients is called torticollis or cervical dystonia, where the head rotates and twists, and it drives people nuts. It it just it's so distracting, so they can't really concentrate on anything. So if you've got Huntington's disease to begin with, and all of a sudden this top comes on top of it, you can see how it would add to the aggravation of the disorder. Um, it. It's also difficult sometimes to distinguish dystonia from rigidity. And you'll hear both these terms used commonly. And these are manifestations of later or more advanced Huntington's disease. And rigidity mostly refers to just stiffening of muscle. So that's when your muscle tone increases. It's just with dystonia, it tends to be more erratic and repetitive and twisting. And rigidity just means you tend to get stiff all over. But the two often occur together
0: often occur together. And in Huntington's, um, is there a specific area that the dystonia will affect or can it affect any place in the body?
2: Good question. And yes, it it's actually a little bit more common in the upper extremities. It tends to be a little worse in the right hand and maybe a little more frequent in the left arm than in the right arm. But um, the, one of the problems is it's As patients progress with Huntington's, they not only have chorea, they have rigidity, they have dystonia. So if you're trying to rate it or grade it as a clinician, it gets tricky. And so sometimes I don't think our our data sets give us the best picture of, of what goes on in any given individual. But back to the original question, which is, yes, it can occur anywhere. And I think the most common manifestation for me and patients with Huntington's disease, one of them is bruxism, which is basically teeth grinding or teeth clenching. And that's a sustained contraction of your jaw-closing muscles. And that can be a problem keeping you awake at night. It can be hard on your teeth. Um, and so um, we just... Keep an eye on these different manifestations in our patients, and if they're bad enough, then you know we we make special note of their occurrence and maybe try and do things about it.
0: The it's interesting that you mentioned the teeth clenching um, is that something that you see like in more further on in the disease, or would you even see that in like beginning stages?
2: Right. We can see that in all along the course of the disease. I mean, teeth clenching is sometimes a manifestation of anxiety or frustration as well. And so, again, if you have a predisposition because you have Huntington's to have over-contraction of your muscles, and then plus you have a lot of stress in your life, which is pretty common in Huntington families, then the two together can cause what this Bruxism and so that may not be so specific for dystonia in general but as much a manifestation of uh, I mean a sort of a combined manifestation of a motor problem and a, and an anxiety issue um, but it does occur early in some patients.
0: What would you say and this is just out of curiosity uh, what would you say is the weirdest place that you have heard about um, dystonia in a Huntington's patient or in general <laughs>
2: well that's a good question um, we see it sometimes in the voice and patients who have voice dystonias
0: they can talk very
2: strange with a very strained voice or they can have a very breathy voice and I suspect that's the most unusual form but When I try and think about it, I don't think I've seen that so much in Huntington's disease, but just in other patients. We have a a large collection of patients with what we call spastic dysphonia, which is really a dystonia of the laryngeal muscle. And since communication is so important, uh, if you mean for everyone, uh, anybody with any symptoms that affect communication uh, often seek advice from their physicians, of course in honeycombs we have a lot of other problems that affect the ability to speak so dystonia isn't often one of them but it could be
0: well, I love that you said combined manifestation too because as you said it's usually not just one thing right it's it's a multitude of things that are working together against you <laughs> or for you um, either way Um and so it, I was actually talking about this recently with somebody else that, um, you know, when you, when you see things like that, it's usually not just one thing. There can be, you know, multiple reasons for stuff. Um, And so I'm guessing that's the the case with um, dystonia and where it's located too.
2: That's exactly right. That we, there are a number of different things going on in Huntington's. And so right. Trying to pin down exactly uh, is this, Uh, dystonia, is this rigidity, is this, I mean, we see, is it chorea, is it a long chorea, or is it a short dystonia? I mean, the the neurologist can get into all these arguments. But I I think, obviously, whatever is going on in Huntington's does what it's going to do, and it's our job to try and pin it down, uh, in part to look for ways that we can help with the symptom if it's bad enough.
0: So what things would help with dystonia? Well, those are that's a good question. There are a couple of different
2: things we can do. Um, that if it's very localized, so for example, people with teeth clenching dystonia, uh, we can actually put botulinum toxin in a couple of the muscles that control your jaw clenching. They're your temporalis muscle, which sits over your both sides of the temple, and there's a muscle on the outside of the jaw called the masseter, and you can feel those contract when you clench your teeth together. It's very easy to put a little Botox in those muscles and relax them. And sometimes it's very helpful for patients. The problem is a lot of the dystonias that we see in Huntington's tend to be more generalized. So in other words, the whole arm may misbehave or the whole foot may turn in when they walk. And it may not be constant. And so then when we're talking about using a dose of botulinum toxin, the dose goes up and up, and the need for it affects multiple muscles, and there's only so much botulinum toxin we can give a person before it makes them terribly weak and causes all kinds of other side effects. So when it's something very specific, botulinum toxin is a good treatment. Now, the other approach is if it's more generalized, if you have more problems with dystonia, is that it does tend to overlap with Korea And there is some evidence that some of our anti korea medications can actually help dystonia. And um, so tetrabenazine or deutetrabenazine um, or valbenazine, some of the newer anti korea medicines, have been used in the past to treat dystonia. And if it's a problem, it's probably worth trying the drug. When we look back at the studies we've done with tetrabenazine and related medications, it's very difficult to sort out a benefit strictly for Korea versus a benefit that may help both Korea and dystonia, so we don't really know, but that would probably be the next thing you would try now, Of course, patients will try lots of different things, even sometimes without asking the doctor. I am shocked by that, <laughs> and there's a very interesting report out of uh, the the Institute in Bochum, Germany, where they said, you know a lot of patients have found that. Cannabis products or marijuana-related compounds seem to help with dystonia. Um, I we'll remember I, I had a patient I took care of in 1983 who would play video games all the time. I mean, that was back in Atari and Space Invaders, the really old ones. And he swore that when he would, have, uh, when he would use marijuana, it really helped his scores, which I don't know if, how factual that was but um i i think nowadays there's a much more liberal interpretation of the possible benefits of compounds like that so and people are actively still looking into this so there are there you know there may be some help coming in the future with different approaches but we don't have proof yet of any of this just sort of anecdotal reports so
0: i'm curious you mentioned that um that the dystonia tends to overlap with the korea why is that do you know
2: no that's a good question so the basic scientists get all excited about dystonia versus korea and what specific areas in the brain cause that and the problem is that it it we can in in some disorders there are very specific problems that occur in very specific areas in the brain. For example, certain kinds of strokes. They only affect a very small area of the brain. And so if that's the problem, then it, it leads to a different, we can very clearly determine, oh, well, that's what's causing the dystonia. The problem in Huntington's disease is that it tends to affect most of the brain and then just in different degrees in different areas. And so what we can't tell in Huntington's is it, that the damage is more concentrated in one area of the brain in some patients versus another, or whether it's just this odd combination of different areas that's causing the problem. And I, I I know that sounds kind of vague and uncertain, but I but it really is the problem we have in Huntington's. We we just we suspect there are multiple ways that dystonia can happen in the disease. And that's why you couldn't say, oh, well, let's do deep brain brain stimulation in this person, let's give this person tetrabenazine, let's try some of the other alternative treatments in this person. We really can't, we're not sophisticated enough to sort that out right now in terms of trying to figure out how to best treat somebody. Basically, what we do is we go with trial and error usually when that's the question. Um, There's speculation that something like deep brain stimulation might help, that's a very invasive treatment. I mean, that's what we do to Parkinson's patients, put wires into the brain and try and help that way. And we haven't seen that much benefit yet for Huntington's. But if we knew there was one specific area in the brain that was causing it, then that might be a much more likely or promising approach. It may just take us, we may need to get better at what we can do with our treatments before we can decide how to best help our patients, but we're not quite there yet.
0: Well, Dr. Walker, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this. I think it's a, a subject that we tend to overlook in Huntington's, you know, because we're so focused on chorea or we're we're focused on the other symptoms and we don't think about um, dystonia, especially in adult onset. I know that juvenile onset, we tend to, to think about it just because we it's more in our face, I guess, is um, why. But... Um, I think it's very important for us to understand Estonia and realize that there are ways to treat it yeah i i would
2: like to just add one more thing and it, uh, one of my mentors i think it was ann young told me this but they in the old days when you would pledge for a fraternity they would give you a brick and you'd have to carry it around all day and you'd go ha, big deal but uh, after the first five minutes it's no big deal but after the first hour or two hours or three hours it really starts to hurt. And that's the way I want people to think about dystonia. It's just this it's constant tension in a muscle. And after a period of time, it really wears on a person. So if it does help to think about it. I mean, I think of Korea as sort of looks like when your mind wanders. The muscles wander a little bit, but that doesn't usually lead to any long-term un- unpleasantness. But when your muscles are constantly tight, that does lead to a lot of discomfort and unpleasantness. And it adds to the burden that patients with Huntington's disease have to deal with and and their families, so it's important to think about. And anything we can do to help makes a big difference.
0: And do you think that things like, um, you know, like the, like Ativan, those types of treatments help with dystonia as well um, just because it could be not only the the Huntington's but a, a stress response?
2: Well, actually, yes. And, in fact, it may be that it's not so much that adivan, i mean, at, there are reasons to think that adivan and what we call benzodiazepines, drugs like Valium and related to Adivan, uh, attack certain neurotransmitter pathways which may be which may predispose to dystonia. But you're absolutely right. Helping with anxiety also helps. Of course, the drawback is we don't really want to sedate patients, and most of the mm-hmm. medicines like Valium, do tend to sedate people a little bit, and long-term, the benefit tends to wear off. So, they're great short-term treatments. Longer-term, they're not quite as helpful, but it is it is one approach that we we use, and sometimes it, it can make a difference. We often use a long-acting drug like clonazepam as opposed to a shorter-acting one um, to avoid the wearing-off effects and sort of give people a, a, a Uh, sort of help them all the time as much as we can. But if there are people that get acute flares or have real problems with anxiety, sometimes the short-term medications can be helpful too.
0: What about things like massages? Like if somebody is experiencing dystonia to the point, like you said, where it's hurting and it's very uncomfortable and painful, um, you know, would massaging help to maybe release that dystonia or um, does it not really help at all? Well,
2: I, I'll say this that because it's so sustained and so chronic and it comes pr- primarily from the brain, massage therapy is not terribly effective. But I've had enough patients with dystonia who come and tell me, gee, I had a, a session and it won't, you know, it, it works for uh, six hours the rest of the day and it relaxes me for a few more days after that. So I'm all for conservative things that you know don't have side effects like massage therapy but i i try not to get patients hopes up too much for that i think in part the massage helps because it it just sort of generally relaxes people and i often think that massage therapists are pretty good talk give pretty good talk therapy sometimes at the same time and so uh well worth trying if 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 it's something that's easy access for you
0: Okay, I have one more question for you that just came into my mind, and it's because I've seen this posted by um, several caregivers. Um, Have you heard of dystonic storm in Huntington's?
2: Yes, so, right, it's, um, again, the question comes, is that a rigidity thing? Is it a dystonia thing? We have seen dystonic storms and uh, children that have a disorder called dystonia musculorum deformans, which is a form of very aggressive form of hereditary dystonia. It's not Huntington's, but – and – and I have seen one or two patients, mostly in juvenile cases, that towards the end of their lives, they would get into these dystonic storms, and they would tighten up, and it would—it was pretty intense. In fact, some of them would develop fevers associated with that. So it, it can be a very serious thing. How closely that relates to the kind of dystonias we've been talking about just that happened to the average person is unclear. This may be a related disorder, or it may just be something different that's Manifests in a similar way, but in either case, those are quite. I mean, they're frightening and they're disabling, and it's 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 awful for the patient and it's awful for the families. We don't have any great treatments for that, but we do. Rec- I mean, any specific therapy for that, but if it's something that's happening, uh, it's well worth uh, trying. Any number of different things and that would include this would be a good example where a, a dose of a fairly high dose of a short-acting benzodiazepine would be worth trying just to see if it could relax it. And there may be other approaches that work, but I'd have to research that separately and see what the latest has been reported on that because it's not an area where we tend to have a lot of success.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to us about dystonia and um, I will tell you again that you are missed greatly by your patients, um, and, um, and uh, you know, as much as I wish you would, were still there, um, I, I am very happy that you are enjoying your time and not having to worry about the stress of work.
2: Well, I, I appreciate your kind words, and I'm I'm so grateful that you're putting out these podcasts for patients because... Uh, having information available for people is just a wonderful thing and you're a great resource for doing that. Thanks, Lauren
0: Thank you so much Everybody take care. Have a wonderful day and we'll be here next week.
2: Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye
1: Thank you for listening don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help4HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help4HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.